Welcome, everybody. I'm Chris Miller, author of the number one best-selling book, Ready for Pre-Tirement, Three Secrets for Safe Money and a Fabulous Future. I'm so honored to be the host of this show called Ready, Set, Retire. Do you lay awake at night wondering if you have enough money to pay the bills, let alone retire? In this show, your vision will be transformed, and I will show you how to have safe money and a fabulous future. I've counseled thousands of individuals, businesses, and families over the past 20-plus years, and proud to say I've never lost a dollar of my clients' money. Today, the Great Recession has made a huge dent on today's ability and confidence to save for retirement. So I've called in a number of experts that really know how to manage these changing times. And today, I'm so honored to have Tony Walker as my guest. He's a registered investment advisor Tony focuses on the way to help you save more money, not give it away to the financial world. He does this by creating a game plan focused on reducing such wealth eroding factors as taxes, fees, interest, and unnecessary insurance premiums. His work is great geared towards protecting your money and not putting at risk. As Tony likes to say, he specialized in sleep insurance. Tony, I'm so glad to have you on the show today. Well, thank you, Chris. It's uh, great to be with you. You know, it's really, you have such a unique approach to money, and I just read your book, The Three Personalities of Money, and it is is really a must-read. All my listeners must read this book because it really clarifies the fog and, you know, you refer to, in your book, as the three-prong approach of man, money and God. How did you come up with this? And why are all three elements important to your personal practice and, of course, to the clients? Well, Chris, uh, just a little bit on my background. Uh, of course, I'm 54 years of age now, and I got in business uh, when I was 24. My father-in-law, fortunately, offered me a job in his property casualty insurance firm, so I really didn't know anything about the business. Uh, I was married to his daughter and uh, was striking out in the broadcast field. I had a broadcast journalism and psychology degree, and neither one of those were landing a job in 1984. So looking back on it, I was fortunate that uh, God placed me in that position and you know, kind of took off from there and went out on my own in 89, etc. But what I've discovered over the years, Chris, is it's really hard, in my opinion, and in my view, and the way I like to practice, to plan for someone's future in a vacuum or plan what I call a one-prong approach, which is what most advisors are trained to do. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of our training, quite frankly, does come maybe from the financial institutions or even educational institutions uh, that are geared towards training advisors. And all that's well and good, and we need to understand about money and how money works. But I've worked with, you know, literally over a 1,000 clients over these past 30 years, and what I've found is you need to understand their personality, and why they do what they do, and that gets back into my background and interest in psychology. And then the second thing you need to do, since becoming a Christian in 1991, what I found in my own life is I really, I think, had a wrong view of money. Uh, There was no godly perspective of the money. Everything was just about the money for me, and nothing necessarily wrong with that, and I always tell people it's just a commodity, so we don't need to get too hung up on it. But I really believe that money can have a huge influence on our spiritual lives 
And that's where a lot of this worry comes from. Uh, sometimes if we're not guided by biblical principles, uh, we can really be led astray. So I try to lead a balanced approach in my life, in my money, and then I assume as an advisor, not that I beat people over the head with my beliefs, but I assume that the people that I'm talking to are going to want to come at it from a similar angle. They're going to want to make sure that the advisor understands money and economics. Uh, thus, the book, Don't Follow the Herd, was geared towards that. They're going to want to hopefully understand that the advisor is grounded in, in something bigger than themselves. That, that's the book, The Worry for Retirement, which is geared towards the God portion. And then the latest book I wrote, The Three Personalities of Money, deals with the financial personality or the psychological aspect of our behavior and trying to understand this concept that people are wired differently. Some of us are wired more as savers. We like safety and guarantees. Some of us are more predominantly investors, so we're willing to take calculated risks, and we love researching and all that good stuff. And then finally, a very, very rare portion of our environment and our population are what I call the speculators who, you know, They'll roll the dice and try anything. To them, money's just something to be uh, had and try to make a bunch of money. So I think it's really important as we get into this interview, uh, Chris, to help people understand that I believe if you come at it from all three prongs, man, money, and God, it's a more holistic approach to planning, and you'll be the better person for it as well. Uh, absolutely, Tony. I totally agree with everything you said, and I'm so happy to hear you say that because that's part of where my heart is at. I'm I'm trying to bring God into the money that it, it doesn't have to be separated. If you have the right principles, then it really does line up. And you've had, you know, almost 30 years of experience. I mean, you're, you know, A plus better business rating, top three qualifier, million dollar roundtable. I mean, you were in the world. You've had an amazing amount of experience and and are bringing a great point of view for people so they can understand this. The newest wave in the financial world is bringing this concept, and I'm seeing it a lot, of a psychology and the study of behavioral finance. So what, what are your thoughts on this approach? And it compared, you know, to this concept of mind over money, right? You created known as the three personalities of money. Well, I'm I'm happy to hear that, you know, the financial world is, is starting to recognize this. I think the problem is, Chris, what I worry about is, um, and don't get me wrong, again, I went to the academic uh, world of psychologists, but I used them mainly to help me test this concept of the sa saver personality, investor personality, and speculator personality. So what I did with the a doctorate uh, of psychologist here at Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green, Kentucky, where I'm located, I went out and surveyed over 100 respondents, and they devised the questions and devised how to test those questions out for the personality. So that was a non-biased way I did that. However, <laughs> you know, I would not expect, nor I don't think they would expect, to literally try to give me advice on behaviorism as it regards to money. That's my bailiwick, because I've done this so long and I've had an interest in understanding people. So I'm afraid that what's happening is the financial world has simply recognized this as an important aspect, but they don't understand it. So what they're doing is they're going in and getting the academic world of psychologists and behavioral uh, finance people, as they call themselves, and they're trying to merge the two. The problem with that is you've got two different schools of thought trying to merge into one, and sometimes uh, I think you get some real goofiness out of this. I, I saw an article recently, Chris, where a financial behavioralist or whatever they're calling themselves now 
is trying to train agents to get in and ask really, really deep questions about their childhood and all this. And I'm thinking, <laughs> boy, this is scary stuff. I mean, you're telling me that most agents don't even understand annuities, much less trying to play Sigmund Freud out here. So that's not what we're trying to do. Right. What I'm trying to do is help generalize a person's financial DNA because I know for a fact, working with people, that all of us tend to have a predominant financial personality, and that's why I've broken it up into these three components. Uh, there's all kinds of different tests out there and everything else, but I believe I've hit the nail on the head here because I've kept it very simple. And then as well, once you determine your predominant financial personality, you're more equipped to go out and find the appropriate products that are more suited to you. And so this protects the advisors who, who are using these tools, and it also protects the consumers and not wasting a lot of time looking at investments that, for instance, really are not suited for them. I, I, like, I just got back from Disney World, Chris, and I like to use this analogy. Uh, we went into one of the theme parks, and at 54, with a slight touch of vertigo that I'm starting to have and a fear of roller coasters, I know for a fact what my stomach can tolerate, you know, what my personality is. Right. So I don't ride on those rides. What I do know, since I've been to Disney World so much, I know the rides and the shows that I like to see that are more consistent with what I enjoy doing. So it doesn't make the roller coasters bad. There were a lot of people running on those roller coasters that could handle it, but I can't. Well, there's no difference with that in the financial world. Let's take a saver like my granddad, who never owned a stock in his life. Well, why in the world would a saver be convinced to put, let's say, half of their net worth in the stock market? You know, be like convincing me to get back on the rock and roller coaster knowing it's going to make me throw up. But the financial world has done such a good job, Chris, of convincing people to invest in products that really aren't suited for them, the typical person doesn't understand this. So then they lie awake at night or they worry, and they really don't know why. The reason they're worried is they're investing in products that are not suited to their financial personality. So what I did was I created a simple little test with the help of the academic folks here at Western Kentucky University. It's just a five-minute test. Anybody can take it. All you do is you just log on to three, the number three, personalities.com, threepersonalities.com. You take the test. All it requires is an email. Nobody's going to call and bug you. But you can quickly find out your predominant financial personality. And then from there, I would suggest if people would like to order the book on Amazon or whatever, or they can download an e-book of the three personalities, they can read more about this concept of mind over money. Right. That's great. And I totally recommend everybody to do that because it really will help people focus on exactly right which ride to ride on. Um I just took it this morning and I you know, I'm a planner and I've seen thousands of people. I think you've done a brilliant job in dialing this in because I've seen all these characteristics. I'm a full blooded saver myself, so <laughs> I can recon I've recognized all these traits over the years, but I haven't had the language and the mindset to put all that together. So, you know, thank you for doing that. It's really really breakthrough as far as I'm concerned. Well, thank in, you. Yeah. You know, in your books, and you got great books, you talk about your granddad, and sometimes you were referred to as a saver. And tell us about him, how he viewed money and how he's watching his life pay, play out, and how did it have an effect on you growing up? Well, I do believe, you know, as I play pop psychologist here with the audience, but I really do believe how one is raised um, their upbringing, uh, life events that affected their lives, you know, in the past are really, really important to know about. So I certainly, when I'm interviewing a potential client, for instance, Chris, I do want to know about their family. And then many times I'll ask about 
well, what your dad do for a living and things like that. I think it's important to know those types of things. And through experience, you can kind of get a better feel for what their makeup is as well. So in my situation, I was uh, my parents divorced at a young age. So my grandfather, who lived about 20 miles away from where I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, I was just real close to him, and I enjoyed being around him. I uh, would go down there all the time. Uh, he was an interesting character. You know, he was born in 1914, graduated high school in 1932, smack dab in the middle of the Depression, you know, 22% unemployment. And it's and this is a true story. You know, when the phone company offered him a gig t- climbing telephone poles, he took it. I mean, that was – and back then, Chris, we forget, but, boy, when you latched on to a big employer – your your whole focus was to keep your nose clean, work hard, and in exchange for all those years of hard work, that employer promised to pay you, we don't see these much anymore, but promised to pay you a pension. And that pension check, when Granddad retired in 1978, came every month like clockwork. In fact, uh, he liked to call it mailbox money. because he And I can remember doing this. We would head off to the grocery store or something, and he'd say, hey, i got to run by the mailbox. He would pull out of the driveway pull up to the mailbox, it was on the highway there, and he'd open it up, and you know, he'd have a little smirk when that check came, that and his Social Security check. And so I'll look back at my granddad, who passed away years ago, but he really was worry-free about money. Um, you know, he, he did not have any debt. And again, not to say he shouldn't have debt, but let's just describe how he lived. He had no debt. He had a small little house that he and his wife enjoyed. He bought older cars. Uh, he didn't waste money. He was not frivolous with stuff. He didn't eat out a lot. Of course, back then, we didn't have cable and cell phones. So other than an antenna on the roof, that's all he had. Uh, worked with a phone company. He got free long distance, which my family enjoyed using as well. We probably shouldn't have. I'd, I'm still worried they're going to come back looking for us. But, you know, long distance was 3 bucks a minute back right, in the 70s. So, right. so that was a cool thing. Yeah. But, uh, you, know, you know, so now that I've, and I, and after he passed away, and I watched how at peace he was with just his lifestyle, Unfortunately, I tend to be a little more chaotic, but I think, you know, that's what life's all about. You enjoy each day as it comes. You don't worry about money. You don't overextend yourself. You don't get hung up in all these gadgets and gizmos. And, uh, you know, you're just smart about your money. And here's what's interesting, Chris. You know, even when he was retired, there was a long driveway that led up to his house. I was down there a whole lot, so I witnessed and watched my granddad. Never did anybody from the financial world ever come and call on granddad. You know, no financial shows back there, not a lot of financial books. So there was nothing to confuse or agitate or steer him off his course. He had everything taken care of, and he was perfectly content with that. Now, with that said, today as we move forward, since we don't, a lot of us don't have the luxury of granddad's pension, and unfortunately we have all this technology and gadgets and gizmos and expenses, it's, it is a lot different time. But that doesn't mean you can't take on a similar mindset and try to think like granddad thought. And number one, the first and foremost thing you can do is avoid investments that are not suited for you. And then secondly, if you don't have a pension, I'm a big proponent of annuities. I remind people these annuities, just like granddad, can provide the same lifetime income or what I call now mailbox money, just like granddad had. So if you're a saver out there listening to this right now, I would highly encourage you to start researching and thinking through these wonderful products that came out in the late 90s that I personally like for savers, these fixed indexed annuities, because not only can they protect your principal, but one day when you're ready to retire and you're looking for mailbox money, they are the only tool that can do that. So as I look at all that, as I'm trying to emulate my granddad's lifestyle, I realize things have changed to a certain point, but there are products and things out there that can duplicate or mirror 
the type of lifestyle he had, and, and for his part, and what I'm trying to do in my own life, is to be worry-free. That's the objective here. Right, right, to actually have a worry-free life. And and I really like the example with Granddad, because that's, that is almost something that is disappearing, and um, it's sad to say that that simple mindset, and, and so... With what you're talking about, we can still keep that there in the generations to come. I'm really glad you mentioned annuities. People have such a bad image of annuities, and and actually annuities have been around since the Middle Ages, right? Nobody even knows about them or what they've heard. They just don't want to hear anything about it. They hear bad things about it. Well, and I think part of that is the where you're getting the information and if you really look, Chris, you know, the problem is nobody wants to study history. And there is a history to the financial world. And you named it, first of all. I mean, the concept of annuities uh, has been around for ages. Um, the concept of Social Security is really an annuity, you know, whereby the government right. supposedly <laughs> has a big lockbox somewhere full of loot, right, mm-hmm. money. And then it's based on mortality and all that stuff. And we get income for the rest of our life or mailbox money that way. So I haven't seen anybody lately turn away a Social Security check, but really what they're getting is an annuity payment. So we're just trying to do the same thing with other savers' money, and the private annuity that you can get through the insurance company does the same thing. Now let me tell you why I think you're hearing a lot of negative press on annuities. Again, with the access to the Internet, with Wall Street getting on Main Street, most of the people in Wall Street do not like annuities, especially these fixed annuity uh, varieties, the fixed indexed and fixed interest. And here's why. These products are not securities products. Now, your viewers or listeners might be saying, well, what's the big deal? What do you mean by that? Well, Wall Street generally represents securities products, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ad nauseum. Those products are generally fee-based products for them. That's not good or bad. I'm just saying that's how the, the income model is set up for the advisor representing Wall Street. The fixed annuity model, I think, is much more favorable for the consumer because if the consumer is working with the right agent who understands these products, purchases a fixed annuity, this is what's really cool, Chris, they have no out-of-pocket cost. The commissions that are paid to the agent are paid by the company. Of course, there's surrender charges, and you've got to be aware of all that, and a good agent will explain all that. I'm just talking about the compensation model. But after that, the consumer is assured that knows that the agent is not dinging the account every year for fees. Right. Now, see, Wall Street, that's not how they work. Wall Street would just as soon not take the commission up front. They make a big deal over that. But what happens is they keep dinging you for fees over and over, and they get paid whether you do or not. I used to work in that area. I charged fees in the 90s. And what I found was, in many cases, they made more money on your money than you did. So this whole notion of commissions and annuities and all that – the majority of people that are bashing these products, I can tell you, first of all, they're from Wall Street, and second of all, it's human nature to not like what you don't sell. Right. <laughs> That's great. You, you know, and, and you know, to my audience, it sounds like you're coming, you know, down hard on Wall Street, but, you, you know, you've been in the trenches for 30 years, and you've worked on that side of the fence, right, on the security. So you know, you know, you know both worlds. And and the messages and the messages that come from Wall Street really surprises me. How we're all we all ta- we're all taught we go to school we're taught how to make money we get out of school and then you know we're making money but nobody's taught how to save money. So most people are really victims of brokers that they don't really understand 
And this is what I've seen over two decades is that when people come in my office, maybe at 70 or 80, I go, well, where's your IRA? And they'll go, at the bank. And I go, but where at the bank? They don't really know where their money's invested. This really shocks me. Yeah, I agree. And, yeah, certainly I'm not bashing Wall Street at all. I have some money in the stock market. What what perturbs me, though, Chris, it's like if I'm sitting out on the porch, you know, let's say me and Granddad are back out on the porch and I'm having a cup of coffee enjoying it, and somebody comes in my yard and starts getting on my bushes or my cuddle or my shutters, now I'm going to have a problem with that. You know, if you want to stay on your side of the road and you like green shrubs and uh, red bushes or whatever and blue shutters, and I, that's okay. Everybody has different tastes. And see, right. that's what bothers me. Wall Street has this one-size-fits-all mentality that everybody ought to be doing it their way. And you and I both know that's not how the real world works at all. I mean, that would be like going back to Disney World and the guy there at the ride yelling at me because I don't come over to the rock and roller coaster. They don't do that. They understand that certain rides will be for certain people. So that's why I developed the three personalities of money. What I'm saying is don't mess with my savers that I work with. You know, I know my savers. I know what they're trying to do. I, I certainly still as a registered investment advisor occasionally put some of my savers' money in Wall Street. I just don't charge hefty fees to do it. That's all I'm saying. So what's happening as we move forward, let's go back to granddad. If you are going to work with people from Wall Street, that's fine. But here's two things I'd recommend your viewers do. Number one, make sure you fully understand the services they're offering. And number two, make sure they are very, very transparent about what they're charging for those services. And I bet you'll find that most people, most people I meet anyway, where they have a problem with their brokers is, number one, they fully don't understand what they've got, and they sure can't tell you how much they're being charged. And I don't think that's right. No, absolutely, I'm, and I'm so glad to hear you say that. For those of you that just joined in, you're listening to Ready, Set, Retire, or maybe we should say Refire, Your Second Life, and my special guest is Tony Walker, and he's the author of The Three Personalities of Money. I totally strongly suggest you go to that site right now. Take this test he has, The Three personalities of money and find out what kind of saver you are it will really really help you and again my name is chris miller and so you can um let's just just dive right back into it for the consumer or maybe you know maybe i should say what should i look for when working with or in view you know interviewing a a, a prospective financial advisor to help me with my retirement because People are asking me, you know, what questions do I ask? How can I trust them? You, you know, people have really dismal uh, projections on financial advisors. Well, I think, number one, the years in business is helpful. Uh, I would want to see, now for me as a registered investment advisor, see, I have to disclose all this. I have to constantly, with the regulators, tell them any activities I've got, what I'm doing, and then I have to give that form to a prospective client. In fact, that form is called the ADV, and it's on my website, for instance. So uh, it, it, they don't have to be a registered investment advisor, but by law, the registered investment advisor has the highest fiduciary responsibility to do what's in the best interest of the client. <clears throat> so let's go back to the Wall Street analogy. If there's a stockbroker, for instance, and they're working with what's called a broker-dealer firm, I would ask them, are you personally a registered investment advisor? And if they say no, then they don't have a form ADV. And this sounds really goofy, uh, Chris, but this is true. They, they do not have to, in writing or they're not regulated or audited like I am, 
to make sure that they're working in the best interest of the client. Now, that's kind of scary. In fact, I remind people, when you start signing forms uh, with brokerage companies, you are, in most cases, when you sign those forms, those applications, you're waiving your rights to even sue the broker. In fact, you have to go through arbitration with his peers. So when you think about this, this, these, these cards are kind of stacked against the consumer. Number one, they don't understand our business. And then when they go into signing forms and talking to people, they, they really are kind of releasing some of their own rights. Second thing I would ask is how many different firms have you worked with? There's some great articles coming out. And again, I'm not trying to bash the brokerage world, but this world is a really uh, difficult world to understand. There's a lot of articles starting to come out now. One of them recently is helping brokers how to train them and how to tell their former clients why they moved firms. Because a lot of these brokers are enticed by money to move from firm to firm. Well, you know, is that in the best interest of the client? Maybe, maybe not. Is it in the best interest of the client if a broker gets paid a half million dollars to move a firm, then contacts the client and tells them to move all their money? Well, the client has to move all their money and liquidate it and pay a new fee or commission just to go over here to the broker. Uh, That doesn't seem right to me. So you you have to look at their activities, their past, how much disclosure they're giving. Now, let's get to annuities. You know, we, we both like annuities, but we also know there's some real unethical characters out there selling annuities. I have on my website what's called an annuity fee sheet. It's a disclosure sheet, so so you can make sure that these annuity people sign off on the actual fees that are going to be charged. There's also an annuity questionnaire for advisors on my website where people can download that. They have the annuity advisor fill it out. It asks about their years of experience, how many annuities they've written. Here's a great question to ask people, Chris. I love this one. Whenever, I don't care what the product is, whenever somebody, an advisor, suggests a product, okay, now think about this, you and I are advisors, we're constantly asking people all these nosy questions, well, I would turn it back on them. If somebody says, uh, okay, Mr. Jones, let's play advisor, I suggest you put this $100,000 in Mutual Nairobi or whatever the insurance company is for this annuity, Uh what I would do is I'd turn around and say, hey, great, I'm open to that idea, but before we go any further, can I see your statement with Mutual Nairobi to see how much you've got invested there? Right. <laughs> and if they say, well, I don't have anything with Mutual Nairobi, then the next question is very obvious. Why? <laughs> All right. Okay, exactly. so we've got to yeah. we've yeah. got to be more confident in our abilities to talk to people. And what I would do is I would not be afraid of anybody in the advisory world. This is your money, not their money. It's not my money. It's your money. And you have every right to ask a lot of questions and see the transparency. If they're acting very defensive with these kind of questions, uh, I'd get my wallet and get the heck out of there. Yeah, I would not right. tolerate anybody being offended by me asking questions like this, because this is serious stuff. Absolutely. Anything you can do to protect your money and get more comfortable with a potential advisor is going to require you to ask a lot of questions of them. Right. Good. Good one. Absolutely. You know, one of the hot topics in the financial world is something that's referred to as income planning. So what do you know about this subject, and, and why is this such a rave right now? Well, in the, and I'm not, when I talk about stuff like this, Chris, I, I'm, I'm the first to tell you, I have a TV show that I do live on air to close to a million households every week, so I get callers and all, you know, I'm the first to tell people that there's an area or topic that I don't understand. I'll just say, I don't know, I don't understand, I'll research it and see if I can help you. But when it gets into income planning and retirement planning, Without sounding conceited, they're calling it income planning. I've been doing this stuff for years. I mean, to me, after 9-11, when I kind of backed away from money management and started working strictly in what I call the safe money area for people at or near retirement, 
I knew that I had to communicate the deployment of the money. Uh, people call it the distribution phase. Well, again, we've been doing this for over a decade. We've created our own spreadsheets, and so we've been way ahead of the industry. So when they talk about this new phase of income planning, I have to laugh because I've been doing this for years. Income planning, as I define it as, the advisor needs to lay out a very, very simple game plan or spreadsheet so that the client can understand, number one, what assets they do have, and then number two, which of those assets is best to deploy to maximize your income for the rest of your life. That's what an income plan is. So I'm all for that, and I'm glad the industry is jumping on that too. But again, we've been doing that for years, and to be a true retirement specialist, you have to know how to orchestrate the money and then how to deploy it for income purposes. Absolutely. Well, you know, you you refer to yourself as a, a contrarian. In fact, in your bio, you say your favorite book growing up was Artie the Smarty. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you can explain what that everybody. It was, but you know, you're talking about childhood, and uh, you know, I, and, you know, it's kind of the same thing back when we grew up. You know, watching westerns or whatever. You know, some right. people like certain shows, but I don't know what it was about that book. I lost it, and about five or six years ago, my wife she said, "Well, I remember that book too." So we went on eBay and. Had to pay fifty bucks for a beat up copy of Artie the Smarty, but I just had to see it again, and it's just like I remember it. It was simple, and it was about a fish who named Artie, and the reason they called him Artie the Smarty is it would say, you know, the fish, you know, you know, school of fish, they all follow each other, they all follow the herd. Right. You know, the fish would go this way, Artie would go that way. You know, <laughs> then there's a picture of a fisherman trying to catch him, and they're all saying, "Stay away from him, Artie." Well, Artie's trying to figure out how to arts outsmart the fisherman, you know, but uh-huh. that's just my personality. I've been one of those types that I've just always kind of been su- assumed intuitively and have enjoyed that. When the crowd is moving one way, I'm very suspicious. Uh, and I think that's probably why when you look at my history, we have tended to be way out in front of the herd in implementing and coming up with new concepts. And it seems like they always come along about five years later. And I guess that's just part of my personality makeup. I'm not settled. I'm not happy to be settled with the way things are, I think there's always a better way to do things for the consumer, and that's part of the fun of this business, in my opinion, is to just come up with new ideas to help communicate concepts to consumers so they can be worry-free. That that that's so that is so great because I you know that's the same heart that I have of trying to make these subjects that are so death and taxes and money and make it fun and bring God into it and bring life and you know make it a Worry-free, like you said. So, and and so, I also want to encourage our listeners to also check out your book. I I, I have that in my hand. I haven't read it yet. I just got it. Don't follow the herd. That looks like a really really great free. And then your other book, Worry-Free Retirement. These are to me these are must reads for safe money strategies. Well, and uh, yeah, let's talk about this. That's okay. The Worry for Retirement, yeah. that was the first book I wrote. And actually, I started on that book right after 9-11. And, the, and it, so it's in print and still in print called Perfecting Your Walk, which when you think about it, that's a biblical connotation there because, you know, uh, the great writer Charles Spurgeon once said that perfection is the standard, direction is the key. And what he meant by that, and this is a biblical concept, you know, Jesus even said, I'm perfect, you be perfect. And or I'm holy and you be holy, and people say, well, I can't reach that standard. Well, that's that's not the right attitude. We know right. we're not going to be completely perfect in this life, but it's exciting to pursue perfection. So when I wrote the first book, Perfecting Your Walk, the concept was let's really think about where we are, where did this notion of retirement even come from, 
uh, is it even a correct notion that we're supposed to retire one day and sit on a beach and you know aimlessly watch the waves come in or whatever it is we thought about? Right. And, and let's let let's not let other people tell us how we're supposed to think about retirement. So I created these little two-minute walks, and there's a little bit of scripture that's tied into it. But what happened was, Chris, nobody could understand what that even was talking about. I remember I had a webinar once, and I had an older gentleman call and said, I thought that was a great webinar, and I've been walking for years. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is this is so confusing. So I changed the name of Perfecting Your Walk to the Worry-Free Retirement. So if somebody goes on Amazon or something and finds Perfecting Your Walk and the Worry-Free Retirement, I'll forewarn you, it's really the same book. Oh, it's got okay. the same galley, so don't. Don't be upset with me if you buy both books and think, what in the heck? Because it is the same book. But the worry-free retirement, uh-huh. I think, kind of honed in more biblically as well in this concept that while God tends to create worry warts, it's funny, he doesn't really want us to worry. And so then it gets into this whole issue of faith, because if we're in the real world, if we're going to worry, that's a sign that maybe our faith might be lacking in those particular areas that we worry. So we can do one of two things. We can even we can either plead to God or we can also do, as Jesus said, you know, the birds of the air, we can get out and on our own, within our own will and what God-given abilities we have, is to figure out a way to resolve some of our worries. So it's a combination. I think some of it is faith. There's things we're going to run into that we on our own cannot overcome. But on the other hand, I think God would say, no, wait a minute, Tony. You know, you can also be prudent and wise and be a good steward and not be outfoxed. Uh, there, right. There's a real good parable in the Scripture that I love uh, where you remember the uh, unwise steward who uh, had squandered the money and the master's all upset with him, but he goes out and he talks people into rewriting the bills and he brings back the money to the master, and the master says, that's pretty cool. You were shrewd in this age and knowing that this age is not godly anyway and you were able to act shrewdly. So what I take that to mean is sometimes Christians, uh, they're not shrewd enough. They are so naive and they don't understand that in the real world, people are after your money. <laughs> and let the buyer beware. So if you're not going to be a good steward of it and be shrewd and learn and understand the rules of the game, and then you lose money, let's say, well, shame on you. That's nobody's fault but yours. Right. So that book is a great exercise to go through for people at or near retirement. Now, the second book, that was the funnest book I've ever done, called Don't Follow the Herd. Um, I was getting into these annuities so much, and people were having trouble understanding them. And then I wanted to bring in this aspect of what I call Wally World. That's the financial world and how comical it can be. So I created this character called Wally World, who starts out, and his teacher says he would be a great school teacher, but for some reason he decides he wants to chase after money, and he be- he enters the financial world, only to determine in his life one day, after meeting a farmer by the name of Farmer Brown, who reminds him that, you know, cows are cows and people are people and don't confuse the two. And Wally never understands that, but at the end of his life he realizes that. In other words, he realizes it's all been about making money, treating people as cattle and herding them around rather than understanding the nature of people and how you have to care for them and take care of them and do the right thing. Right. So that's right. a great lesson there, and I think even for people in the financial world, I was a, that was a subtle jab at me and you and everybody else where we can get caught up and making boatloads of money, because you can in this field, let's face it. And then the second part of that book really gets into some very simple strategies on how to grow your money and enjoy your money, particularly for those who are savers. So that's a great, great book. Uh, It's probably received more accolades than any book I've uh, written, and I think because it's practical, uh, yet it has some real uh, neat things that you can take away. And even for advisors, I think it's helped advisors 
think through their lives a little bit and what they're actually communicating to consumers. Great. So people can get a hold of these books at on your website or on Amazon? Yeah, there's two ways to get them. Uh, my personal website, with all the stuff I've been mentioning, can be found mm-hmm. at TonyWalkerFinancial.com. That's TonyWalkerFinancial.com. Or they can just go straight to Amazon. And uh, I even noticed on Amazon the other day they've even got all three of them packaged. I guess they're starting to sell a little more or something. It just says you can buy all three. But I hadn't noticed that before. But, yeah, either Don't Follow the Herd, The Worry for Retirement, and the latest one, Three Personalities of Money. Those are the three books uh, that are on Amazon. And I think all three of those are in ebook form as well that you can download. Yeah, great. Well, these are definite must-reads. I'm so happy to, you know, have you, you know, bringing God into the money and and practicality and showing people in really clear language what and how it all works. I'm really, really impressed with the books here. Tony, you're located in Kentucky and the Midwest, and I'm I'm over here in California, and we tend to think you know, people think differently out here than over there and <laughs> in your neck of the woods, you know, as they might say. Do you believe that people located in different parts of the country are different when it comes to their views on money? That's a really good question. Now, you know, I'm not from California. I've been out there a lot, but I don't know. You know what I think, Chris? I think sometimes, now this is, uh, you know, I, I watch less and less of the news for this reason, but I think it's kind of like what we talked about earlier about people trying to formulate your own opinions. I think the things we see on the news sometimes, and we're seeing snippets of this and that, and, and again, I've got, I'm on TV a lot, and I've, I've majored in broadcast journalism, so I've had an interest in always watching this with a keen eye. I think, number one, news has changed. Even the way I was trained by, and, uh, at Western Kentucky University by some of the old news reporters, you know, your job was to try to find the facts and report the facts. Your job in fact, if you remember, Chris, when we were young, you'd watch TV. If somebody got on there and spouted off their views, they would literally say editorial at the bottom of the screen. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Well, that's not that way. Everybody's editorializing everything, and everybody yeah. tends to want us to believe what they believe. So when I get out, whether it's at conferences or I've visited California or wherever it is, see, I think people are pretty much the same. They, they haven't really changed. I think, number one, they do want to enjoy their life. They do want to contribute to society. If they have family, they want to take care of their family, and they love their family. I think most people in general, although we can all admit we're sinful, but you know they do love their fellow man. They don't want to hurt people, and uh, you know I don't think people like being cheated. They don't like being swindled. I mean, all those things have never changed. And I'd say if you lined up 40 people and nobody knew where they were from and asked them a lot of these same questions, whether they're from California or Kalamazoo, they'd all probably be in somewhat agreement, you know, forget all the political stuff and all the stuff you see on right. TV, but right. our real wants and desires, those God-given things that we all want, the things of the soul, and that's what I'm talking about. Right. I think we're all wired very similarly, Chris. I don't care where you're from. Yeah, I do too. I do too. Absolutely. And, in, you know, we talk, we talked a little bit earlier about the idea of the financial world, bringing in experts, you know, from the field of psychology to assist consumers with their money. You know, what would you say about this? Any words of caution about this new discipline of behavioral finance? And I, let me just interject here. There's a lot of this, especially in California, in the woo-woo end of the world. You know, they've taken as a man thinketh and, you know, mm-hmm. and created a whole platform from that, you know, like you think yourself rich kind of thing. So there's, you know, there's a lot of psychology going on about money. And what what do you think about all that? 
I, I, I'm just, uh, again, now my already the smarty kicks in, you know. <laughs> I, I, I will say this. There's, you know, in human nature, now this is the sad part of human nature, and, I, and you and I both know we have to fight this as well. But remember what I said earlier, and some people might say, well, that's an extreme comment, Tony, and I don't think that's nice that you said that. But in general, somebody is always after your money. And trying to understand the true intent of their motives for using your money, and, and you know, there's a concept called OPM, other people's money. That, that is just the way the financial world works. I tell people, it's, uh, I heard a guy speak, uh, Bob Castellan was a big influence on me. He used to make a comment. He'd say, you know, the financial world's like Dracula. You know, Dracula needed blood to live. The financial world needs money to live. They're no different. Right. Without both of them, they die. So you have to understand the financial world wants to figure out any way they can to get your money. It's called capitalism. It's up to you to figure out if this is just a lot of smoke and mirrors and hocus-pocus and untested uh, you know, variables and things they're bringing to the table, or is it things that seem practical and really make sense. So when you start introducing psychology and the spiritual things, I think if you're not careful, uh, Chris, actually that's dangerous territory because those things can appeal to people and a lot of times they're not verifiable. They're really not truthful. So you got to be, I think, especially careful with what's going on with all this psychology stuff. Right. And and maybe appealing to the people's, you know, sentiments. I mean, maybe they believe in God or spiritual things, and they kind of use that to sell something, right? Well, let's, so. let's face it. I mean, the latest article I just wrote for a, a national publication is called Man, Money, and God, and I start off the article uh, you know, when you're watching TV, and, and again, I'm being stereotypical, I'm not trying to be critical, but to just get people's attention, I said, when you're watching TV and you see the slick talker in the really nice suit talking about God, and the next thing you know, he's asking for a donation to plant that seed to help you in your walk. Well, yeah, I mean, Chris, who wouldn't want that, right? No. I mean, again, that's appealing to the nature of our souls that we're craving for something. Right. So a very, very good communicator can enter into that realm very well. They're trained at it. They're good at it. You know, the, whatever it's, you know, I say a slick talker, but we know what we're talking about here. Right. And they can appeal to you, and people will do things with money when it comes to spiritual and psychological issues that they normally wouldn't do when they're thinking clearly. That's all I'm saying. Uh, right. Think about a grieving widow. You know, I always tell widows it's really practical. Be very careful to start investing, you know, very soon after the death of your husband. I just met with a widow the other day, and it's been about a year, and she told me that. She said, Tony, the broker that he had, they were very close, and I'll admit, I never understood a word they were talking about, and I've gone to see this broker, and all he keeps telling me is, it'll be fine, don't worry about it. Well, you know what? That's not good enough for her. <laughs> and what, and the, the emotional part of it is, here's what she said, I would like to consider working with you and your process and what you're doing, but I'm afraid I'm going to offend the broker in some way, I'm offending my husband, even though he's deceased. Right. Now, right. let's take that as an example, Chris. If I'm a very good talker, and I'm the broker, and this lady's thinking about moving a bunch of money out of my hands, and I'm charging fees, so that's mm -hmm. going to cost me something. If 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 I wanted to, and I, I personally would never take this approach, but you and I both know, if I wanted to, with that poor widow, 80-year-old widow sitting across from me, all I'd have to say is, now, Darla, or whatever her name is, what would your husband really think about this? Right. They see already the emotions right. and the potential yeah. guilt, and right. yeah, you just you know you can't do yeah. that. What you have to say, an experienced advisor is looking out for them. Darla, is there anything I can do to you know? 
now you've got to turn on your servanthood. And if you're not willing to do that, you, you know, that advisor needs to let Darla go because he's not thinking in her best interest. But my right. point is, when it comes to those types of emotional, spiritual, psychological issues, well-trained people can get you to do things that you're really not comfortable doing. And that's been proven time and time again. Absolutely. You know, this kind of reminded me, going back to the question about the different locations in the country, where in the South, um, you know, I used to go a lot to Nashville, and I write, I co-write and write uh, gospel inspirational music. And I must say, there was more, there's more of a God, faith, and country in that part of the, in that part of the country than, um, say, other parts of the country. And that, and that principle of, you know, like your granddad and that and the way that your granddad brought you up and all of that is for some reason there's still a little faint memory over in the south as far as when I look at, say, California and the hustle and the bustle and everybody's in a hurry to make money and do whatever they need to do to do that. So it's fascinating to see how it's all changed. Well, I think uh, that's a good point you make. I think some of that is relative to what we were talking about earlier, though. You're influenced by the people you were closest to and the the South, which it's it's more, a little more hustle-bustle than it used to, like in Nashville or Atlanta. But in general, yeah, the South runs pretty slow. For the most part, people, you know, have stayed around. So they've stayed near family. They've stayed near the tradition of going to church, which, by the way, uh, and I hope the people listening in the South don't take this personally, you know, just because a lot of people attend church, I heard a pastor say this, does not necessarily mean I'd want to be chained to him during the rapture, you know? Right. So, but, but that's a part of our culture here, whereas sure, I think California, sure. you had this huge exodus over time of different people and having to leave their families and having to start businesses. And, you know, yeah, you just kind of get a different culture out there, but I would still argue, you know, whether somebody understands what a Christian is or not, I bet you a dollar that the people in California have the same God-given needs and wants right. that people in Bowling Green, Kentucky. They Absolutely. just don't know how to identify it maybe or what to really do about it. So right. um, I, I remember that uh, we had a local prayer breakfast for years that I helped coordinate, and one of the blessings there was I got to find the speakers for it. In fact, the, the Speakers Bureau was located gentleman in California there, Kermit Sutherland, and his ministry was to find speakers for prayer breakfasts. So he would help me every year. We had some great speakers from around the country. But one of the speakers was a guy named Keith Wheeler, and Keith Wheeler carried a cross all over the world. I think he still does it. But here's a here's an interesting story, Chris, and I'll share this with you. And this hopefully ties in with what your point was. He would go into these remote villages in the middle of nowhere, you know, in these countries, and barely, most of them couldn't even speak English, obviously. And here he'd come with his big cross on wheels, rolling it through. You know, I could just picture this, this village in the middle of nowhere, and what he found was other missionaries had been there. So people would come up, and they'd say, who are you? And he'd say, I'm a Christian. And he would start sharing about his faith. And a lot of them would be immediately turned off. They'd say, oh, yeah, we know about you Christians. So then he started changing it. So he would go into these villages, and he said, I, I, there was, he said there was a wall there that existed, and I realized other people had been there, and these people were not impressed or not affected by whatever message they were sharing. So he would change that message. So he would go in to a remote area, and they'd say, who are you and what are you doing? And he would say, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And they say, well, tell me about him. Who is he? Right. You see, so it changed the... So this is really not about 
how many people are going to a church building on Sundays or what people are doing in California, but I do believe there is a thirst for understanding more about the wants and needs. And what happens is most people just don't really understand what the gospel is all about. A guy once said, it's not that we haven't made the gospel good. We haven't made it good enough. We've gotten distracted with church and doing this and doing that. And before you know it, the whole message has been diluted, you know. So I know we're deviating a little bit from money, but I think it's important. I think it's very important for people to think through these things and challenge themselves to be open to what the Bible has to say about money because Jesus had a ton to say about it. And surprisingly to most people, he liberated people over money. He did not put them in chains over money, and that's the good news. The church has taken the opposite view with their their constant mantra of preaching this and tithing and this. But what happens is it, it limits the possibilities of how God can work in your life and make you worry-free. I think it even makes you more worried when you sit around and listen to a lot of these preachers talk about money. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I totally agree with you, and, and I'm a little contrary, too, And uh, because, honestly, I feel that the churches are the far, are, well, it even says in Scripture in the last days, they'd be the farthest from the representation of I mean, you know, if Jesus Christ knocked on their door right now, they'd probably call him and arrest him as a, a hippie or, you know, <laughs> a transient, right, living on the road in faith. And, and no, I had that experience with it's a whole other show we can talk about, living <laughs> on the road in faith. But, um, and and so that that conception has been so warped out that now people, and it's understandable, like you say, we'll talk about it, but give me your money now people are so turned off, they don't even want to say God or oh, don't say Christian or Jesus because you're going to, because they have such a bad image, which has really been prophesied it would be that way in these times. So it is very misleading. That's why people have to really, you know, go into their heart and pray and ask God to show them inside because there's a lot of misinformation out there. Well, I uh, I uh once kind of, I didn't really challenge him because I wasn't trying to offend the gentleman, but I asked a preacher why he preached quite a bit on the tithe. And he mm-hmm. said, well, I think it's biblical. And I said, that's fine, but what if you just preached the gospel? Don't you think if you opened up the hearts of people with the power of the gospel, they would give freely and without any compulsion because Paul talked about that. You know, um, compulsion to give is the wrong motive. So what? And that's what I was challenging him. Why don't you just preach the gospel, and why don't you have faith that God will provide for your church? <laughs> See, I think the, the pastors right. are some of the ones that have the least amount of faith. That's absolutely... And it's evidenced by what they're always preaching on money. And half the time, I don't even think they understand the scriptures involving that's money right. because they're worried they got to make the next payment for the electric bill just like we do. You know, they've got, right. they got a business to run. And, yeah. I, and I would say that's the last problem, the last point. I'm sorry we're on this church, but since we're talking about money, yeah. the biggest problem, I think, with today's church is they are starting to look so much like the world in the way they conduct themselves, right. know, like a business and budgets. And I mean, I, I've looked all through Scripture, and I've never seen a copy of a bylaws for the church at Corinth or budgets or anything else. So <laughs> no. you know, I would call, you know, the, I would just no, call right. the churches not to get so hung up on the money as well, and I think some of them are. Well, yeah, absolutely, and we're just really talking about a mindset because if you want to go into, you know, the book, it says take no shoes, no script, no person, you know, and uh, and totally trust the spirit. Everything you have need of will be there. So, yeah, you, that's the way I operate. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, 
I did that literally, but you can actually do that in the world, whatever job or whatever you're doing, by living in that faith and trusting God that you have what you have need of. Or you're, you know, you'll be led differently than living in that fear and that worry. And so, yeah, see, that, yeah, that's yeah. that's kind of a sadistic notion too. You know, when people uh, come down on Christ or whatever, or these notions we're talking about, my thought is, why would you forget whether you believe or not? Why would you not want more of a worry-free life, and why would you not want to put your trust in somebody? And I don't get that, see. Now, for the first 31 years of my life, I really didn't get it. I didn't do that. But since I've done that and seen what it's like by putting my faith and trust in God versus the first 31 years that I didn't, I can't I can't imagine going back to that time. So when all these people are all worried about money and they're hiring pop psychologists and, you know, whatever they're getting involved in trying to, you know, satisfy their needs or concerns or worries, and then they are critical of somebody who's put their hope and faith in someone else like Christ, but they're joyous about it and liberated and more worry-free, my question is, why wouldn't you entertain that? (laughs) Because you're chasing after everybody else that's saying the same thing. So um, that's all I would encourage people to do, whether you're in California or wherever. Um, here's the book I would challenge people to read. As a lot of people say it's a goofy book. I think it's the most wonderful book in the Bible. Even if you don't understand the Bible, get out the Bible and read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's written by the world, right. the most powerful man in the world who had everything. And for those in California, you know, especially that like to question the status quo, I think it would be very enlightening and challenging. And then after you read that book, then you can go to other books of the Bible and begin to read them. But read them. Don't try to study mm-hmm. them. That's the other mistake I think Chris people make. Read them as if you believe God is talking to you, and just have faith that he'll speak to you and watch what happens. That's what I right. would challenge you to do. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, and the proof is in the pudding. Absolutely by that. So I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that we were able to speak about things that really matter and that are really real because you know, God and money and spirit and everything is all part of it, and they can't be separated, which is what the world has tried to do. And Christianity has been poisoned by the churches, so that really nobody even has a clue of what would... They wouldn't even recognize Jesus Christ if he walked by. So it it's another world completely. But as far... You know, I've heard you say in the real world, right, in many cases... The financial world is make, making more money on our money than we are, you know. And I, I've heard this said a lot. Is that would you say that's really true? And maybe you could share an example. Oh yeah, actually, I use this in my workshops all the time. Um, let's take a person that has two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and let's say they decide to invest in a variable annuity. And let's and I'm not picking on variable annuities. I'm just going to quote truth now, okay? Okay. So, and let's say the fees on that variable annuity are three and a half percent. That's the average fee on a variable annuity today. And if you made, on average, five percent a year, every year on the variable annuity, at the end of 20 years, instead of having $650,000 in a perfect world, see, that's what 250000 would grow to at five percent. At the end of 20 years, what you would have is about $350,000 because of all the fees and what's called opportunity cost that has to come out to pay Wall Street. Now, those are real numbers. Now, let's say you lowered the fee to 1%. Let's say you're being prudent and you're saying, well, wait a minute, I'm not going to give up that much money. You know, they didn't even put anything in the deal, and they got 300000 and I get back seventy-five because I put in two fifty. That is a real-life example of where they made more money on your money. Right. Plus, Chris, they had no risk. They didn't have to do anything. They just had to manage it. 
and you don't even have any guarantees. So what if you lowered the fee to 1%? You know, that's something you could do, right? Right. You could find a product. There's products that have 1% fees, uh, and let's say that same product averaged 5%. Well, the amount in your pocket, I don't have these numbers in front of me, versus 342 would be approximately $540,000. Now, that's a huge jump in wealth for just lowering the fees. That's all we did. We didn't change investments necessarily. We didn't go out and try something goofy or put our money at risk. So you, that's a biblical concept because the Bible says count the cost. The problem is you don't know the cost as a consumer to even count it. So unless somebody's going to help you educate you and help you understand those costs, how in the world can you put more money in your pocket by saving on those costs? Yeah. But that's what a trained so a trained advisor is a trained advisor is not supposed to start off a special retirement specialist start off talking about rates of return you you'll know right away that you don't have a trained retirement specialist is all they want to talk about is the return on your money what you should be more concerned about is the return of your money and how you can minimize and cut costs because that's where all the money's found right and and. It's really that you, that you said that, like 3%. People have no idea the fees. You can't read it on a variable annuity statement. Where are the fees? They don't even know. Or the 401Ks, right? All the fees that are wrapped up in the 401Ks that people don't know about. Oh, yeah, the government finally stepped in, and uh, you know they, they created a firestorm when they finally, the Department of Labor, made them start showing those fees. I've had people that come in and said, I had no idea they even charged fees. See, they, weren't even, they didn't have right. to disclose those. So, yeah, I would say, especially for savers, if somebody has gone to 3personalities.com and taken that test, if it says your predominant personality is a saver, I would get with whoever your broker, advisor is, and I would say, we're going to have a discussion on costs. That's all I want to mm-hmm. talk about. Right. And the four major costs that an advisor should help you with are taxes, fees, interest, assuming you have loans, and insurance premiums. And that's where most of your wealth is going to those four institutions that have those costs. So the first thing you should do is not chase returns, but attack costs. Right. Good one. Good one. Well, Tony, this is really, this hour is zoomed by, and we just barely touched the surface of what we could talk about. This has really been fun. and great for for our listeners maybe we have a few minutes left maybe you could just give us a little cherry on the top of what you'd like to leave our audience with well if if you don't mind me just kind of peddling my wares a little bit and uh you know i don't make any money on books and free downloads but i do want to expose people Uh, i kind of refer to myself as a money missionary and uh that's why i agreed to get on your show if i can help people with the message and help clarify their thoughts on what they're wanting to do, then you know, I think that's why I'm really here. And uh, whether somebody's in California or not, you know, I don't even work with people out of state. Uh, I'm only licensed in Kentucky and Indiana. So people need to understand, I'm not going to come chasing after you when you go on the website. I really have tried to pr- create tools that can help a lot of people. So the best way to be exposed to a lot of these tools is just go to TonyWalkerFinancial.com. Uh, there's an Annuities 101 icon. You can download a free booklet that I've written there. I'm updating that. It's going to be called the Annuity Decision Guide very soon, updated for uh, 2014. There's the Annuity Fee Sheet, so you can take that to your broker advisor and find out exactly what the fees are on your annuity. There's the Annuity Questionnaire for the advisor to find out how experienced they are. You can uh, see all the books. I've got plenty of videos. Uh, I have a YouTube channel at Tony Walker Financial on YouTube with plenty of instructional videos uh, that we've recorded off the TV show that I do every week. So there's a ton of stuff on there to educate people. And what I want to assure people is 
if they go to my website or start downloading stuff, you know, we're, they're not going to look out the window and see a representative showing up on their door 30 minutes later. We don't do that type of thing. So they are free to, you know, utilize any of those materials they like. Great. Well, thank you so much, Tony, for sharing all this great stuff. And everybody, I encourage you to go there and 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 go read and watch all the information. And he's spent 30 years with integrity gathering all of this for everybody. Tony, this has really been a joy. I really appreciate having you on my show again. This is Chris Miller, and you can reach out to me at Chris, K-R-I-S, at Ready for Pre-Tirement. And my website is Ready for Pre-Tirement. That's R-E-A-D-Y-F-O-R-P-R-E-T-I-R-E-M-E-N-T.com. Pre-Tirement, plan retirement early so your money, your health, and your peace of mind is there when you need it. Tony Walker, you are a real blessing, and I really appreciate having you on our show. Well, thank you, Chris. Found out you can't take the curve at 85 My whole life flashed before my eyes I braced myself to leave this world behind As a million questions raced across my mind Did I live? Did I love? Did I matter to someone? Did I give everything I had to give? Did I save any souls? Was I worried about my own? Was I haunted by the things I never did? Did I embrace each day with faith, hope, and laughter? Did I matter? From that moment I became a brand new me With the golden ticket to a better destiny And I told my heart there'll never come a day When I'd have to search inside of me and say Did I live? Did I love? Did I matter to someone? Did I give everything I had to give? Did I save any souls? Was I worried about my own? Was I haunted by the things I never did? Did I embrace each day with faith, hope, and laughter? Did I matter? can be a voice of inspiration and my story finds you well cause when the curtain falls there ain't no second chances and you don't wanna ask yourself did I live did I love did I matter to someone did I give everything I had to give? Did I save any souls? Was I worried about my own? Was I haunted by the things I never did? Did I embrace each day with faith, hope, and laughter? 
did I matter? Did I matter? Oh, oh, oh. did I matter?